Good morning to everyone. Please take God's word and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 4, and the book of Isaiah, chapter 49. Did you catch that? You're going to two places, the book of Luke, chapter 4, and the book of Isaiah, chapter 49. Isaiah, we'll get there eventually. We're going to begin in Luke this morning. So you have your Bibles open. Take also, I trust you received one on the way in, your worship guide, your bulletin. And when you open uh, the worship guide, uh, you will notice on the left of the page, welcome to worship, right? Our order of worship or what we formally describe as our liturgy. And then on the right, what do you see? Sermon notes. Entirely up to you whether or not you choose to use them. I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things as we commence. A broken sentence. That is the title for this sermon. I pray that makes sense, not now, but by the time we're finished. A broken sentence. Under that title, a voice comes from the past. A man named Thomas Wilcox. He was a Baptist preacher in London in the 1600s. He wrote a little book, very profitable. And in this book, he penned the following. It is something I return to time and time again. There it is. This alone is true religion. Lots of false religion out there. Plenty of fake religion, empty religion, dare I say pointless religion. This alone is true religion. And he makes two points. Number one, to rest everything upon the everlasting mountains of God's love in Christ. Note the language. It is not God's love for you, firstly. It is God's love in Christ. My friend, that's what you want. You want God's love in Christ. You want God's love for Christ to be his love for you. That is true religion. And then he adds, secondly, to be found continually in the righteousness of Christ alone. Uh, we sing a hymn here from time to time. Uh, my hope, a solid rock I stand. Is that the title of the hymn? On Christ, the solid rock I stand? I think it is. And the opening stanza, my hope is built, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I've got it right. Yes? My hope is built, Chris, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I'm confused because there is another version. I'm not sure which is older. That would be an interesting study. But the other version is as follows. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. Now, that's a subtle difference, but it is 
unbelievably profound. I have nothing against the first edition. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, other than the fact that it is identifying it as something over there. Jesus' blood, Jesus' righteousness, my hope is built on that. I kind of lean in terms of preference. We don't need to change it. Chris, don't change a thing. I just want to make you aware of it or change it if you like. (laughs) My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. That's a world of difference. He's mine. His righteousness is mine. This is the bedrock upon which I stand. And this alone, says Thomas Wilcox, is true religion. Waver in either of these two points. And my friend, you have wandered from the essence of true religion. I pray again, by the time we're finished this morning, not only are we making sense of the sermon title, a broken sentence, but uh, what Thomas Wilcox shares in those words is a living reality for each and every one of us. Our text, Luke 4. Don't put your bulletin away. We're going to come back there in just a moment. Our text, Luke 4, follow along as I begin reading in verse 16. And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. So this is Jesus now reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue, I can imagine, were fixed, fixed on him. Now the bulletin, I want to make use of it again in just a moment. Uh, You're well aware of, uh, of the power of suggestion. Uh, you're well aware of how, for example, an artist, a good artist anyway, will use color, uh, contrast, light to direct your eye to the focal point of his or her painting. You'll notice that in an art gallery, a good work of art, your eye is always drawn somewhere and that is the, the intention of the artist, to capture our attention. It holds true with advertising. Uh, if you walk into a, a, a store such as Brookshire's, or certainly a shopping mall, we are being manipulated. I don't know if you're aware of that. You are being manipulated every time you open, enter a store, every time you walk into a shopping mall. It, it, the layout, the color, the products, the prices, everything is designed to draw our eyes to certain places, places we never intended when we walked in, but for some reason we find ourselves putting stuff in the basket that wasn't on our list, 
our attention is being forced somewhere, directed somewhere, and it is the same thing when it comes to writing. A good author, and it's oftentimes we're completely unaware of it, a good author will employ words, phrases, and literary devices to lead us, direct our attention to the main point he or she would like to make. Well, Luke is manipulating us in this text. He is directing our attention to his main point. I have illustrated it for you in the sermon notes. Do you see it? I've given you a play-by-play of our text. And just notice where it begins. This is right there on your sermon notes. Jesus goes to where? The synagogue on the Sabbath. That's the opening statement, verse 16. Fair enough. What does he do? He stands. Then what does he do? He receives the scroll, the scroll of Isaiah. Then what happens? He unrolls, physically unrolls the scroll. And then verses 18 and 19, he reads. Now look what happens. What does he do after he finishes reading? He rolls up the scroll, that which he had formerly unrolled. He returns the scroll, that which he formerly had received. He now sits because formerly he had stood. And Luke's point is what? Jesus is the focal point of everyone's attention in the synagogue. He designs it in his writing to draw us to something and then lead us away from something. It is known as a chiastic structure. And the point, it is a literary device. The point is to draw our attention to what he perceives or what he wants to portray as most significant. Here is the main point. Here is what I want you to get. Here is what I want to grab your attention And in this text, it's verses 18 and 19. It is the Lord Jesus reading. It is the Lord Jesus reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And simply put, the rest of the book of Luke, do you know what it is? It's Luke's explanation of that text. That's all it is. That's all the rest of the book of Luke is. He has the Lord Jesus. This is the focal point. He has him reading these simple verses from Isaiah. And then in the remainder of the book, he explains how Jesus is the very embodiment and fulfillment of this text. So I think it's pretty important. That's Luke's point. We're going to start to look at the specifics of this text, verses 18 and 19, next Sunday. What I want to do with you this morning, very simple, very straightforward, I simply want to make three observations concerning Jesus' reading. He reads. Three observations concerning his reading. Each is important. With each, we will narrow our focus And I believe with the last, we'll come to a beautiful point, crescendo if you like, which will serve to emphasize Wilcox's, Thomas Wilcox's point, that true religion, what is it? 
It is to rest everything upon the everlasting mountains of God's love in Christ. And it is to be found continually in the righteousness of Christ alone. Okay? You see where we're going? Three observations. Observation number one. Jesus reads from the Old Testament scriptures. It's obvious enough. It's unbelievably significant. He reads from the Old Testament scriptures. I put to you that the Lord Jesus is immersed in the Old Testament scriptures. It's evident before this. It is evident when he's a 12-year-old boy up at Jerusalem in the temple, dialoguing with the scribes and the teachers and others. It is certainly evident at his temptation as a fully grown man, as he's in the wilderness, and he rebukes the devil. How? By quoting scripture. And it is evident from here right through to the end of the book as he constantly makes reference to the Old Testament scriptures. I just want to notice a few things, emphasize these things, move on quickly, but, but they are significant. Here's the first. Jesus accepts the Old Testament as complete. That's good. He accepts, receives the Old Testament as complete. Later in this book, chapter 24, verse 44, just mark it. Listen to what we read there. It's Jesus speaking. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, and the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, also known as the writings, the Kethuvim, must be fulfilled. Why is that significant? It is significant because that was the tripartite division of the Hebrew scriptures. That's how the Jews referred to the Old Testament. The exact same books we have in our Old Testament. They are the exact same books, the exact same content. The Hebrews described those scriptures as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. The Lord Jesus employs the same tripartite division, and in so doing, he is recognizing that the scriptures are what? They are complete. On another occasion, recorded in Matthew 23, verse 35, he's speaking to the Pharisees. He's culminating. He's bringing to a close his seven, is it seven woes upon the Pharisees? And he declares, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Doesn't seem very significant till you realize, okay, the Jews, they had these three divisions, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. They were the exact same books that we have, but the order was different. First book of the Bible, Hebrew Scriptures, is Genesis. The last book is Chronicles. We read of the death of Abel where? In Genesis. The death of Zechariah where? In Chronicles. What was Jesus saying? From the start of the Hebrew Scriptures to the end of the Hebrew Scriptures. All the righteous blood that was shed as recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures. You see, from the vantage point, this is of fundamental importance that we understand this. From the vantage point of Jesus, the Old Testament scriptures are complete. The living word of God gives his sanction to the written word of God. I want you to notice also that he accepts the Old Testament scriptures as truthful and reliable. So when he reads the Old Testament, he is reading history. He references Adam and Eve, Abel, Noah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
Lot, Lot's wife, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Naaman, David, Solomon, the queen of Sheba, Jonah, Isaiah, Daniel. These are real people. He refers to all of them by name. They were real historical figures from the vantage point of Jesus. Not only did he reference these historical figures, but he repeatedly referenced historical events. He speaks of the creation of Adam and Eve. It's a historical fact. He speaks of the first marriage between Adam and Eve. He references the flood, the whale that swallowed Jonah, Lot's wife who was turned into a pillar of salt, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the burning bush, the serpent in the wilderness, the manna for the Lord Jesus. This is history. And so not only does he view the Old Testament scriptures as complete, he views them, he views them, receives them as truthful and reliable. I also want you to notice here the following. He accepts the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative. He quotes from the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Micah, Jonah, Zechariah, and Malachi. Quotes from all those books. He quotes scripture to resist trials, construct arguments, silence his critics, teach lessons, reveal prophecies, defend truths, and expose needs. John Murray has observed the teaching of our Lord is steeped in his appeal to the Old Testament scriptures, steeped in his use of the formula, it is written, pervaded by his recognition that what scripture says, God says, and characterized by his acceptance of the finality of the word of scripture. That's my first observation. I trust it is profitable to you. I trust we understand again how the Lord Jesus viewed the Old Testament. Simply put, it is the word of God. It was complete. It was historically reliable and truthful and it was ultimately authoritative. Now, here's the second observation I want to make. We're going to narrow our focus. Okay, he reads from the Old Testament scriptures. I get it. More to the point, he reads from which book? The book of Isaiah. Now, in his day, there are no chapter divisions. There are no chapters and verses. They don't exist for centuries afterwards. He unrolls that scroll and he reads from a certain point. He knows exactly where he's going. An interesting question is this. As he stands and he receives the scroll, is that scroll given to him because he asked for it? We don't know. Or is it simply given to him providentially because God is orchestrating the whole thing and that's what he wants in the hands of Jesus at that point? Interesting question. We don't really have the answer, but it is Isaiah. It needs to be Isaiah. Why? You found Isaiah chapter 49, right? 
We're going to jump around a little bit here. Isaiah 49 is where I want to begin. The book of Isaiah, I mean, the, the, the word Isaiah, the prophet's name, basically symbolizes the prophet's message, the salvation of the Lord. That's what Isaiah means. The book is essentially divided into two main sections. And so for the first 39 chapters, God is addressing his servant, the nation of Israel. And Israel is falling to the Assyrians, those invading armies. Judah is then going to fall to the Babylonians. But God makes the point that he had appointed Israel, the nation of Israel, as his servant. And as his servant, they had a role to fulfill. They had a, a calling to fulfill. They were to serve as a light to the Gentiles. They were to declare the glory of the Lord to the Gentiles. They were to uphold true religion before the nations. They failed pitifully and miserably. And they fell into idolatry. And as a result of their idolatry, off they went into captivity. In the second part of the book, chapter 40 through to chapter 66, I believe, the servant is still in view. But the servant is no longer the nation of Israel. The servant is an individual. An individual who will be all that Israel failed to be. An individual who will be the embodiment of all that Israel was supposed to be. An individual who will be a faithful servant. Whereas Israel had proved itself to be an unfaithful servant. And so from chapter 40, right through to the end of the book, the emphasis is upon an individual. And in this big section, we have what are known as the servant songs. Servant songs. Here's one of them. Chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. But it is an individual. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. What is this? This is the incarnation of Jesus Christ, is what it is. The Lord called me from the womb. We move beyond space and time into the eternal counsels of the Almighty. He called me from the womb. He named me from the moment I was born. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, my words able to pierce and to divide between soul and spirit in the inner recesses of the heart of man. He hid me in the shadow of his hand, a shadow caused when the hand is clenched, speaking of protection and preservation. He made me a polished arrow. 
He set me apart from ordinary arrows. He set me apart from arrows of everyday use. He polished me. He preserved me. He set me apart for the fullness of time. And when the fullness of time arrived, he set me in his bow. He drew back the string and he launched me forth to fulfill the mission for which I was sent as his servant, as Israel, the one who will glorify God. It's the incarnation. Now turn with me. Still in the book of Isaiah, all the way back to chapter 42. I warned you we were going to jump around a little bit. Profitable, I pray. Chapter 42. And look at what we read just in the first verse. Behold my servant. God is now speaking. Whom I uphold. Who I equip. Who I strengthen. Who I preserve. My chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We have moved from the incarnation to what? Jesus' baptism. He's in the river Jordan. God will preserve, uphold, equip, enable, and strengthen his servant, his servant whom he has called and appointed to glorify him. He refers to his servant as his chosen, in whom my soul delights. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. My, there's a ring to it. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. Jesus emerges from the waters, the heavens open, the voice of God the Father is heard. This is my beloved Son in whom my soul delights, the one in whom I am well pleased, my chosen one. And what happens subsequently? The Spirit of God descends in the likeness of a dove and anoints the Lord Jesus. Interesting, what do we read in the middle of verse 1? I have put my Spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation. And so in this description of this individual who is the servant of God, the true Israel of God, you see something of an incarnation. You see something of his baptism. Now fast forward all the way to chapter 50. What do we have here? Isaiah chapter 50. Oh, we could read much of this text. Let's restrict ourselves to verses 6 and 7. And now we see something of his ministry. A ministry which will culminate in disgrace, public disgrace. Isaiah 50, verse 6, the servant is speaking. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And so the servant empties himself of all that is exalted and he humbles himself to all that is debased. And what do we read in the seventh verse? But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He has set his face like a flint a hard rock, a hard stone against which we strike iron in order to ignite a spark, to get a flame. He has set his face like flint to be struck. He has intentionally done it. He has purposefully done it. 
he has willingly done it, as Luke is going to record on three occasions subsequent to the fourth chapter, the Lord Jesus is going to reveal to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem. And there I will be betrayed. There I will be arrested. There I will be mistreated. There I will be crucified, and after three days I will rise again. He has set his face like a flint to the work that the Father has appointed for him. He knows, I know that I shall not be put to shame. He knows that his suffering will ultimately resound to God's eternal glory. So we have his incarnation. We have his baptism. We have the focus of his ministry, and it is hurling us forward toward his crucifixion. And turn with me now. Do I even have to say it? To chapter? Do I even have to say it? 53. Isaiah 53. And what do we read in verse 7? Again, we could read the entire chapter. Just look at verse 7. He was oppressed. This is the servant. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He does not hurl screams of rage at the heavens, nor does he hurl threats of revenge to his enemy. No, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he goes forth willingly to the cross. And look at what we read in the 10th verse. His suffering. Notice the cause of his suffering. Please notice the cause. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There is the cause. Notice the nature of his suffering. Still in verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for sin. He's going to die as a sacrifice. He's going to die as an offering. And it will be through the anguish of his soul that he makes atonement for sin. And notice the result of his suffering. Still in the 10th verse. He shall see his offspring. Who are his offspring? If you are a Christian, you are his offspring. It's salvation. He shall prolong his days. That is his resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That is his exaltation. The result of his suffering. And so we go from his incarnation to his baptism to the focus of his ministry, to the cross. And now to Isaiah 61. Finally, you say, Isaiah 61. And what do we read beginning in the first verse? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. It is the servant speaking. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2, first statement only, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Where, where is that? That's Luke 4, 18 and 19. The Lord Jesus takes the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He turns to this specific text. He reads it. He gives, he rolls the scroll back up in Luke 4, verse 20. He gives it back, hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. As we can well imagine, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue, they're just transfixed on Jesus. Verse 21, we didn't read it earlier, but here it is now, the punchline. He began to say to them, today, 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 this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It isn't merely Isaiah 61. It is the book of Isaiah. It is the prophecy of Isaiah. And it is in particular all of these prophecies, the servant songs, that find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You know, I can't go on. Maybe I should go on, but I won't go on. I'll just pause here, just in case there's just one, just, just one. And if you're not that just one, then just pay attention. Don't tune out, but bear with me. I, I, have, I have real problems with the skeptic. I really do. The skeptic who questions the word of God, questions the Lord Jesus, the veracity or the truthfulness of the Bible. I, have, I, have, I, I find it, and I don't say this to be smug or combative or anything like this. When I, when I read scripture and I just read what I just walked you through, I find it unbelievably difficult to take the skeptic seriously. If you're a skeptic, I don't take you seriously. I really don't. Because your issue isn't intellectual. You are deceiving yourself. You are nowhere near as clever as you think you are. The issue is not intellectual. It is moral. You hate what I am saying. You hate this servant. You hate the Lord Jesus. You hate the idea that you might actually be accountable to a sovereign judge on a coming judgment day. And it is for moral reasons you reject what is exceedingly obvious and plain to all. This is the word of God. This is the servant of God. This is the son of God. This is Jesus Christ fulfilling everything. 600 years after it was penned. Fulfilling it all today, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. He is the true servant. That's his point. And even more to the point, and this is what the Jews are going to find so offensive, what is he claiming? He is the true Israel. He is the true son of God. Israel blew it. It's over. It's done. But now the true servant, the true Messiah, the true Israel, the true son of God has come. God has now called his son out of Egypt. And it's not the nation of Israel. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through the Lord Jesus Christ that God is going to bring healing to the nations. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ that we find everything that Israel was supposed to be, but never was. 
And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we find a Savior of sinners. And so we've narrowed our focus from the first. He reads from the Old Testament. To the second, he reads from the book of Isaiah. To the third point I want to make, the third observation, very important. He stops reading mid-sentence. He stops reading mid-sentence. If you still have Isaiah 61 open, look at the second verse. How does it begin? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you like, you can skip back to Luke 4. Look at it, verse 19. Oh yeah, there it is. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where he stops. He stops mid-sentence. Because back in Isaiah 61, verse 2, what do we have? A conjunction, and. And so the servant has come. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He's equipping him to be a preacher. And here's what he's going to preach. Yes, the year of the Lord's favor and a conjunction, something else. The day of vengeance of our God. He stops mid-sentence. Why? He's acknowledging his two advents. He's acknowledging what is often collapsed in the prophecies in the Old Testament. They're often given together. Deliverance and judgment. Deliverance and judgment. One coming. But then with the coming of the Lord Jesus, we realize, no, there are actually two comings. There is a coming to deliver. And there is a coming to judge. And at this point, he's making it clear he has come as an equipped, enabled, strengthened, anointed preacher to proclaim this. This right now is the year of the Lord's favor. At his first advent, he did not come to judge. He declared it himself in John 12, 47. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Pause, a huge pause. But my friend, don't miss it. He is coming again. And when he comes again, it will not be to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It will be to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Paul leaves us with no doubt. 2 Thessalonians 1. Jesus will come. It's a second coming. He will come from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. But praise God, he stops mid-sentence. A broken sentence. This is precious. This is valuable. This is of inestimable worth. A broken sentence that he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Paul picks up on this in his second epistle to the Corinthians. Chapter 6, verse 2, he makes it plain. Behold, 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 would you just look? Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Not then. Because when the then arrives and Jesus comes back, he completes the remainder of the chapter in Isaiah 61 and he comes to proclaim the day of God's vengeance. Let me ask you some questions. Don't answer them out loud, but uh, in your heart of hearts, just work through some of these questions. Um, 
especially in light of that text, 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Anybody here long for forgiveness? Anybody long for forgiveness? Um, lots of regret. Oof, you, you hate looking back because there is so much regret. Uh, habitual sin. You've been in the, its grasp, its clutches for, for years. Uh, riddled. Pride. Envy. Anger. Bitterness. Oh, this text is for you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The servant of the Lord has come. The servant of the Lord who had but one end, one goal before him, it is to glorify God, glorify his Father, glorify him how? By setting his face like a flint. A flint to what? Suffering. Suffering where? Upon Calvary's cross. Suffering upon Calvary's cross. Why? To offer his soul as an offering for sin. Atonement. Oh, are you looking for forgiveness? Just forgiveness. You're longing for a clean slate. Oh, the Lord Jesus. Look no further. Here's another question. You long for love. I think everybody does. Sadly, most of us define it very poorly, inadequately. Do you long for love? Are you seeking love? Well, God's love in Jesus Christ, you trace it through those texts in Isaiah. His love in Jesus Christ is unwavering and it is unchanging. But please note it, going back to Thomas Wilcox's point, we rest upon the everlasting mountains of God's Love in Christ. Friend, please grasp it. Please, 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 please. Are you looking for something in you? Are you looking in you for a reason as to why God should love you? Save you a lot of trouble. You will never, ever find it. There is none. What you want to do is you want to become one with the Lord Jesus through faith because God loves the Lord Jesus with a love that defies explanation. It boggles the mind and our wildest imagination. And what we want to be is one with the Lord Jesus, whereby, therefore, we rest in the everlasting mountains of God's love in Christ. Anybody looking for peace? Just peace. Turmoil unbelievable. The upheaval unimaginable. Well, please hear these words. You can turn your fears, your worries, your problems, your uncertainties over to someone else, the Lord Jesus. Someone who is infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, and infinitely Good. Oh, to know peace, peace with God in Jesus Christ. This is the favorable time. This is the day of salvation. I had some other thoughts here with which I intended to conclude. Let me add this. Let me conclude with these words. I pray the Spirit of God will take it and... Uh, 
Grant us understanding and impress it deep within. Uh, if you're looking for forgiveness, looking for love, looking for peace, if you find yourself this morning on the other side of the equation, you're not a Christian. You're not a believer in the Lord Jesus. Well, think this through, I pray. Think of the Father as he poured out his wrath upon his son on the cross, his son with whom he was eternally well pleased. Just think of that. The wrath of God poured out upon the son, Jesus Christ, with whom the father was eternally well pleased. Let me turn a phrase here. Let me just reword it. Slightly different terms. Seek to understand this. The Father was never more well pleased with Jesus than when he was displeased with him. Think it through, my friend. If this doesn't break your heart, nothing will. The Father was never more pleased with Jesus than when he was most displeased with him, the cross. Oh, he was infinitely well pleased with Jesus at the cross. The sweetness of his holiness, the sweetness of his obedience, the sweetness of his righteousness, a fragrant offering, aroma to God. He was never more displeased with the Lord Jesus at the cross. Why? Not because of him. Your sin and my sin charged to him. He was never more well pleased with Jesus than when he was displeased with Jesus. If you need a savior, and maybe you do, look no further. There is a full and sufficient savior. If you need forgiveness of sin, friend, you're not going to find it anywhere else. If you need peace of conscience and peace with God, there it is in Jesus Christ. And if you need a love that defies explanation and imagination, there it is poured out at Calvary's cross. Oh, let me conclude. I think so. It's the place where we began. That quote from Thomas Wilcox, this alone is true religion, and I pray you're convinced of it. Number one, to rest everything upon the everlasting mountains of God's love in Christ. And number two, to be found continually in the righteousness of Christ alone. Our Father, we do pray that you would, uh, by your Spirit, uh, be working in each and every mind, heart, life. And we pray especially for the obstinate in our presence. Undoubtedly, there are some. You know who they are. And we pray that by the cords of love, you might draw them, uh, breaking their heart for sin, for rebellion, for open defiance, and demonstrate to them uh, your loving kindness as it resides in Jesus Christ, that there is indeed forgiveness of sinners in him. For your people, may we be built up, edified, encouraged, comforted. May our love be enlarged as we consider this great Savior, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done on our behalf. And with all this, your work in our presence, we pray that you would be glorified. Ask it in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.